For the past couple of weeks, we've been in a series that I said covered three central words for Christians. Those three central words are our heavenly dad. Our heavenly dad are these three central words. And every one of these words is important. The word our, we talked about a couple weeks ago. Our is the word that reminds us we're all in this together. God is doing something in all of us together. It's not just one of us or a few of us. When God makes a family, he makes a big family. Then we also talked about the fact just a couple weeks ago that God loves us no matter what. God loves us no matter what. He loves us so much that he doesn't just want us to call him father. He wants us to call him dad. Twice in the New Testament, we are encouraged by the Apostle Paul and others to call, call our Heavenly Father Dad. And so our Heavenly Dad are two very important uh, concepts. Today we're going to talk about that middle word, heavenly. And in fact, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be focusing in on that heavenly word, different aspects of what it means to call God our Heavenly Dad. Today, the first concept that we want to accept when it comes to God being our heavenly dad is this word, sovereign. God being our heavenly father means that he is sovereign. I want to take you to a verse in Micah chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. It says, Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. If you've ever seen a waterfall, you know its power is incredible. You don't want to stand in its way. If you've ever seen a candle beginning to melt and all that wax is dripping off the side, you know that even though the flame is just that big, you still don't want to be in the middle of it. Because if it can do that to the wax, what's it going to do to your skin? And all of us know that we don't want to be too near the dangerous thing. And in Micah chapter 1, in Micah chapter 1, it very specifically tells us that God is the dangerous thing. God is the dangerous thing. Or look at Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 21. It says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. By the way, that's being generous towards you. I've been in an airplane. And you people don't look like grasshoppers from an airplane. Your cars look like grasshoppers. You inside the cars are much smaller than, than a grasshopper. God, who sits above the plane of the earth. In actuality, our size in relationship to him is microscopic. We'd be happy for him to view us like grasshoppers. Yet it says he stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. You know, when we hear words like that, we're hearing the easy form of sovereignty. I, I, I speak to non-Christians, and I'll say, it's important for us to keep God first in our lives. And a non-Christian will say, oh yeah, 
Yeah, God is the number one thing in my life. I've said that to many, many people, and I've heard many people refer to God as the most important thing in their life, even though there's nothing about their life that demonstrates he's the most important thing in their life. The way they're living is exactly the same as the way everybody else lives, but they will say God is the most important thing in their life. And that's because they have adopted the easy form of sovereignty. The easy form of sovereignty is the form that says God made everything. And so God is in charge of the stars. He's in charge of the solar system. He's in charge of the galaxies. Is God in charge of you? No, I'm a grasshopper. He doesn't care about me. So I can do my own thing. I can do my own thing. I don't have to worry about God. His idea is too much on the big things. And so the picture of God's sovereignty that has him over the big things is an easy view of God's sovereignty. He's in charge of all the big stuff. Another easy way to view God's sovereignty is when it comes to miracles, God should be in charge of the stuff that I can't handle. I can't handle this particular medical problem. I can't handle this particular life situation. And so God should be in charge of that because it's too big for me. Therefore, that's God's responsibility. It's easy for me to have an idea of God's sovereignty when it's the big things that don't relate to me or when it's the things that are too big for me to deal with in the first place. Those are the times when I want God to be sovereign. Those are the times when it's easy for me to believe that God is sovereign. Another time that's easy to believe that God is sovereign is when I consider that he is the rule maker. And I only ever consider God's sovereignty in the rule making and industry when the rules apply to someone else. You know, you're driving down the road. You cut off the guy behind you, but the person in front of you doesn't turn their blinker on when they turn right. And you're mad at them because they didn't follow the rules of the road. You're mad at the person who yields at the roundabout, making you wait longer, even though you're the person who flies through it at 40 miles an hour. I'm speaking about myself, actually. And both of those are breaking the law, stopping or flying through. But all of us have a tendency to point our fingers at the other people. See, God is sovereign over the laws that other people are breaking. That's the easy form of God's sovereignty. Maybe over these couple of weeks, we're going to talk about different forms of God's sovereignty. But today, I want to talk about one form of God's sovereignty that is super difficult for us to grasp. One form of God's sovereignty that we just don't understand. By definition, we don't understand. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my thoughts. Ways declares the Lord. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. A lot of us can take an easy approach to this form of sovereignty too. God's thoughts are higher than my thoughts because he's worried about the things that are above me, that are above my pay grade. God is worried about keeping Venus spinning in the proper way. God isn't worried about my little things. However, just because God says his thoughts are higher than your thoughts doesn't mean he's only thinking about things that are higher than you. He also says, my ways are higher than your ways. See, God's purposes and his methods frequently don't make sense to us. And that is by design. 
Here's the thing I want you to take a note of. Maybe write this down. The hard kind of sovereignty is described by this phrase. God is in charge even when I don't understand it. God is in charge even when I don't understand. A lot of us want to be in that place where we understand what God is doing and why he's doing it. And when we get to a place where we don't understand what God is doing, we find ourselves in a difficult spot. In fact, I could say that almost every example in the Bible of a person who rejects God's sovereignty is a story of a person who has not understood what God was all about. I'll give you a few examples. I go back to this story frequently, but Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam hears the voice of God say, don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, it will kill you. So then he and Eve are standing there and a snake comes up and begins talking to them. And apparently that didn't surprise them. But uh, Adam did let his wife talk to a snake. I always tell men to keep their women away from snakes. You know, it's your job as the guy, whether that snake is in a bar or just wriggling on the ground. I don't care. But keep your women. Anyway, so here's Adam. He's watching his wife have this conversation with the serpent. And the serpent says this. The serpent says, did God really say? The opening lines of what the serpent says to Eve is, can you really trust God? Can you really even understand what God meant when he said what he said? And as the story continues, he just brings one doubt to her mind. And she looks to the tree and it says, when she saw that the tree was good for food, God didn't say that, the serpent didn't say that. When she saw that the tree was pleasing to the eye, God didn't say that, the serpent didn't say that. When she saw that the tree was desirable for gaining wisdom, the serpent had said something similar to that. She took and she ate. But it all begins with someone who says, I'm not sure I understand what God is doing here. God made a completely arbitrary command that doesn't make sense to me. His command is simply, don't eat from this one tree. I've eaten from many trees. I've eaten from all kinds of different plants. I've had all kinds of different fruits. None of them have killed me yet. And the snake, who's probably already eaten from this tree, because, of course, he's in the tree or something, he's the one who says, listen, this is a safe tree. And she says, I don't know if I can understand what God is doing. And because she doesn't understand, she doesn't obey. Happens with Abram. You know the story of Abram? God says to Abram, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son by your wife, Sarai. And then just a few chapters later, they're in Egypt because there's a famine. And Pharaoh says, oh, she's a pretty woman. And Abram says, you can take her as your wife. She's only my sister. He lies about his wife. And then the story goes downhill from there and God eventually brings it all back together because God can do that kind of thing. When he's made a promise, he can keep his promise even if you didn't keep your promise. But because Abram didn't understand what God was doing, he got himself in trouble. He didn't understand what God was doing with Sarai, so he slept with another woman to have a child with her. Or later on, King Saul. He didn't understand what God was doing through Solomon, when, excuse me, through Samuel, when Samuel said, wait here until I get there. Listen, here's the point. If you don't understand what God is doing, you will be tempted to do something on your own that you do understand. And that's where we get ourselves into trouble. Because God is in charge even when we don't understand. I want to take you to a passage in Habakkuk. Because see, there's one guy in Scripture who didn't understand God and still let God stay in charge. 
It's Habakkuk, chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Habakkuk cries out, How long, Lord? How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Habakkuk is looking at his world. He says, he says, God, this world is supposed to be your world. These people are supposed to be your people. Why have you let them go so, so far down the path of evil? Why have you allowed evil people to lead them? Why have you allowed violence to reign in their streets? Habakkuk says, God, I'm fed up with it and I'm fed up with you. Why haven't you done something? And God says this to Habakkuk, an amazing, amazing answer. He says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. And here's the important line. For I am going to do. It doesn't even really matter what the rest of that says. Habakkuk says, why haven't you done? And God says, I'm going to do. I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. Here's Habakkuk. He's upset. He's irritated. He's annoyed. He's wondering why God won't do anything about this problem that he sees. And God says, hold your horses. I'm about to do something that'll blow your mind. You wouldn't believe it even if you were told. There are three lessons I want to try to teach you today. Three lessons for how to process a God who is in charge even when I don't understand it. And lesson number one comes from this passage in Habakkuk. Lesson number one is this. When I'm upset, God is still in charge. When I'm upset, God is still in charge. Uh, this is something that I've had to learn time and time again, but uh, some of you watched me learn this lesson over the last couple of years. Um, some of you might know about uh, three years ago, two years ago perhaps, um, 2018, however you measure your years, in 2018, uh, I learned that um, the, the county of Tippecanoe was charging us real estate tax for these buildings over here. Now, I thought we were exempt because when we bought those buildings in 2017, the day that we closed on those buildings, and some of you know this story, of course, the day we closed on those buildings, I went downtown to the county assessor's office and I signed a piece of paper that said we were transferring ownership of those buildings to us and that we were a tax-exempt organization. So my assumption was that for the rest of that year, the buildings would be tax-exempt. And then in 2018, when I got the information that those buildings had taxes levied on them, I went down there and I filled out another form, but it turns out that form was filled out too late. And so I filled out an appeal and I appealed that form for filing too late and they granted us nothing. They didn't even answer my appeal. And so six months later, I did the appeal again. And that time I did get an answer. They said, no, we won't consider you tax exempt. So I did more research. I filed another appeal. I filed an appeal with the state and then I went before the state, and I gave them my appeal. And then an interesting thing happened. I also learned that in our previous appeal, one of the things I had asked for wasn't even considered. And so I appealed again, a third time. 
I appealed a third time for one other thing in the process. I was appealing everything I possibly could, reducing the valuation of those properties so that the taxes would reduce and reducing the assessment of the properties as being not tax exempt. I go through this whole process. Some of you know that this last month, two months ago, May, we were able to make the final payment on those taxes. And so our tax burden is completely eliminated and the total amount of money that we, were pay, that we paid out was $20,000. We paid out $10,000 like a year and a half ago and then we paid out another $11,000 in May. And that basically covers it all. We're done, it's all over, that's great, I'm celebrating it. But some of you know, because I shared this on Sunday, the very first day I found out we owed taxes, I was so mad and depressed and angry. Some things in the church weren't going the way I wanted them to go. And then I found out about this tax burden. On the way home from the assessor's office, I stopped by Walmart. I bought myself a fried chicken and some potato wedges, and I went home and I ate the whole thing. That was not good for my midsection. It is also not good for my soul. But I was just so angry and depressed. I needed something. I thought I needed some comfort food. I was upset, and I've been kind of upset about that tax situation for the past few years. Appeal after appeal after appeal, and uh, penalties added on top of the things and all this stuff. But there's one thing I realized literally this week that I don't think I'd actually put two and two together this way before. Did you know that according to the law, no matter what we would have owed taxes on these two buildings our first year of owning them because we didn't own them on January 1st. No matter what, we would have owed taxes on these two buildings for one year because we did not own them on January 1st. On January 1st, they were taxable buildings, and that's the only thing that matters under the law. And that tax would have been $40,000. If I didn't know that we had missed a filing date. And if I didn't file that one form late, and if I hadn't been given the wrong form the first time I went in there, and if I didn't go through a first appeal that they did not respond to, then I never would have gone through the second appeal when I realized here's another avenue we could take to just ask them to reduce the valuation on the properties, which they eventually did, and our total tax burden was only $20,000. And if I didn't go through the incredible 18 months of irritation and frustration and upset with regard to these taxes, our church would have paid 40000 instead of 20000 You see, a lot of times our problem is that we look at God and we say, God, why aren't you doing the thing I want you to do? And God shakes his head and he says, because I'm doing something better. Why would I settle for what you want? I've got something so much better. You see, even when I'm upset... God is still in charge. And I'm a person who frequently has my faith bumps. I'll go in a faith upswing someday, and then another day I'll be in a faith downswing. And, and I know you guys have that same thing going on in your life. But even when you're upset, God is still in charge. But I want to take you to another idea. It's the flip side of that statement. And it says this. When God's in charge, I might still get upset. 
when God's in charge, I might still get upset. You know that passage we just looked at in Habakkuk? Habakkuk says, God, why aren't you doing anything? And God says, hang on there. I'm about to do something. And what I'm about to do is going to blow your mind. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be huge. It's going to be awesome. And we think that's awesome, God, but keep reading. See what God actually says he's going to do in verse 6. He says this, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. You see, Habakkuk was saying to God, God, my people are such violent people. My people aren't following you. My people have rejected you. My people aren't obeying you. He says, God, why do you let bad people lead us? And God says, I'll tell you something even better. I'm bringing a worse person to lead you. I'm bringing Nebuchadnezzar to lead you. I'm bringing the Babylonians. They're going to come and capture you and carry you away. And these people are ruthless. These people are violent. And Habakkuk, you know he's thinking to himself, and if you keep reading the rest of the chapters, you know he actually says this out loud. He's like, God, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Of course, God would be saying, duh, I'm the Lord of the universe. But Habakkuk is like, God, who do you think you are? Because God just said, I'm going to bring someone worse than you to judge you. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense at all. But see, here's the point. God is so in charge that when he's in charge, he still might do something that will upset you. In fact, we should almost expect it because truthfully, why would I ever want a God who is in charge of the universe, who is only as smart as I am? If everything God did made sense to me, that would mean that I'm as smart as God. Why would I want the God of the universe to be limited to my level of intellect, knowledge, and wisdom? And so Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 20, after much more thought, says this, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. My paraphrase, God's in charge. Shut your mouth. God's in charge. That doesn't mean it's working perfectly well for me. God's in charge. I might still get upset. And when I'm upset, God is still in charge. Because God's sovereignty means that. You can call him dad, yes. You can call him our, yes. But when you say he's our heavenly dad, you have to recognize that that puts him in a place way above you. That puts him in a place where you are not allowed to judge him. That puts him in a place where you are not allowed to second guess him. That puts him in a place where you are not allowed to say anything like, gee, God, I would have done it better. There's one more thing I want to share with you. When it looks like God's not doing his job, it might be that I'm not doing mine. When it looks like God's not doing his job, it might be that I'm not doing mine. You see, one of the weird things about a commander is that when a commander gives a command, the command never happens unless the commanded get it done. Sometimes we're blaming God for the thing he's asked us to do. 
There's a song that was popular on Caleb a couple of years ago. And it's a song about this guy who's looking at all the world. And he says, God, why don't you do something? And God says, I created you. I want to read this verse to you from Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. You know a little bit of this story. This is Moses standing at the burning bush. Moses has now been tending his father-in-law's sheep for 40 years. He killed a guy in Egypt, ran away because he was scared. And so now he's been in the desert wandering around wilderness life for 40 years. And now he's at a mountain and he sees a bush. It's on fire, but it's not burning up. Must have been about 90 degrees outside, I think. Something along these lines right now. But anyway, Moses goes up to the bush. The bush speaks to him. And it says that it's the voice of God coming from that bush. And then, verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And if you pay close attention to the beginning of the passage and the end of the passage, God says this, I've heard them, and I have come down to rescue them, and I'm sending you. I've heard them, I've come down, and I'm sending you. I've heard them, I've come down, and I'm sending you. There are a lot of things in this world that we get ourselves upset about. Oh, and it's easy to have God's sovereignty when it involves the other person. It's easy to have God's sovereignty when it involves something far away from us. It's much more difficult to have God's sovereignty at work in my heart and in my life when I'm the one who's upset with something. And it's easy for me to blame God's lack of sovereignty when I'm upset with something. But if God's sovereignty is questionable in my mind, it's possible that I'm the one who's supposed to do the thing he's asking me to do. Because, see, God's sovereignty only lasts as far in your individual life as you will let it. One of these days, God's sovereignty will be the judge. One of these days, God's sovereignty will evaluate you. But until that day of judgment comes, he is a God of long-suffering grace. And if he asks us to be part of his work and we do not, then as far as you're concerned, as far as I'm concerned, as far as any group of people who does not do that work is concerned, God's sovereignty has ended with them there. If you look at this world and you're wondering why God isn't doing something, it might be that what he's doing is tapping you on the shoulder. And so we're left with this. I'm not exactly sure which one of these three sort of thoughts Uh, settles with you the most today. Maybe for you, you're in a place of being upset and you need to remember that God is really still in charge. Maybe for you, you're in the place where you know God's in charge, but you're really upset with something else. And maybe you need to recognize that the thing that God is doing is the exact thing that's making you upset. And in both of those things, the answer is patience. You need to wait. But it's also possible that the answer for you is to work. 
For some of us, the response to God's sovereignty is to wait. For others of us, the response to God's sovereignty is to work. And at any point in our lives, it's going to be one or the other. You know, a number of years ago, I had a Razer flip phone. Did any of you have one of these? It was the most popular cell phone around, but I know I'm dating myself because they were around in like the late 90s, early 2000s. I think it was, I think I got mine in like 2006, and uh, so I had this Razer flip phone. It was made by Motorola, and it had these buttons on it that had letters under them. The, the button, like number one, had the letters A, B, C, and then in order to text, you had to tap this button more than once to get the letter you wanted. It was, it was a beautifully amazing piece of technology, and everybody thought the Razer your phone was the best thing ever. At the same time, there were other phones out there that some people loved. There were the Nokia phones. They ran the show. There were the BlackBerry phones. They were absolutely in charge of the business segment. All the business people loved their Blackberries. All the normal people loved their Nokias, and all the cool people loved their Razors. I'm saying that because I, I like to think of myself as one of the cool people, but what happened was a rumor began to circulate among the tech industry that Apple was going to make a phone. And listen, I got to tell you, I thought that was the stupidest idea in the world. Everybody knew Apple. Apple was a computer company. They made these big, bulky computers. Their laptops were okay, but slow, not very good, and they were heavy, and they didn't have very great battery life. No one really liked them. Everybody was in the PC world. That was where everything was at. And the only thing that Apple really had going for them was they had this iTunes system that allowed you to buy music easily, and they had these things called iPods that would allow you to take a lot of music on the road with you. I didn't like them because, see, everybody knew that MP3 players were very common, and you could buy a cheaper MP3 player that holded much more data, and I had one of those things. And so, you know, Apple was just one of these companies. It was hip for some people, but, you know, eh. when they said they were going to make a phone, I thought to myself, that's just the dumbest idea in the world. But I'm a preacher, and I like watching other people do their thing on stage. And so I would watch Steve Jobs do his keynote speeches at each one of his Apple events. And so I remember one day I was watching his keynote speech And he held up this little device that he was calling the iPhone. And he walked through the things that it could do. And how if you took two fingers, oh my goodness, this is amazing. If you took two fingers and you pinched, you could make a photo go bigger or smaller or spin it. And I was in my house watching the TV screen just absolutely gobsmacked. I was like, oh. And when I saw that, after it was done, I think I said these words to Jen. I cannot believe no one ever thought of that before. Because once you saw it, it made so much sense. It made perfect sense, and it changed the world. And a lot of us live in a life that is pre-iPhone with God. See, one of these days, God is going to send his son back to earth. One of these days, Jesus is going to come in power and victory. And he's going to make all things right. And we will see with our eyes what that looks like. And in that moment, we will say absolutely clearly, that's what it's like. Why didn't we ever think of this? Why were we so upset with all the stuff down here? Why did we never realize that what was go- that's what was going on? When we see God like that, it's going to make perfect sense. But right now we're on the before side of that picture. 
We don't see the other side. We don't see the, oh, I didn't think of that sooner. And that's because God, way better than Steve Jobs, is sovereign, is wise. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows all things. And when Jesus was hanging on the cross, God was still in charge. It was the Father's will for the Son to come and pay for the sins of the world. It was the Father's will that he would go to the grave. It was the Father's will that he would rise and triumph on the third day. And it's the Father's will that he would be the name above all names. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God, our heavenly dad. We're going to take some time to sing one final song. I want to start it with just a time of quietness. You're going to hear the road. You're going to hear some of the breeze in the trees. But we're going to take just a time of quietness. If you want to celebrate communion in your little family group uh, during this final song, I encourage you to do so. If in gratitude you want to bring forward a gift, I encourage you to do so. If you don't want to do that, that's all entirely fine. This is a weird day. I don't care how you encounter God's sovereignty today. I just want you to encounter God's sovereignty. And I want you to all over again for the first time say, Jesus, I love you and I thank you. For all that you've done, I will pour out my heart and I will receive you all over again into my life. Let me pray for you, then we'll have a moment of quiet and we'll finish with one song. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.